Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 513, Frying Pan, Meat Fire. This episode of Craftlit is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I am well because it is feeling like fall. We have had a whole week of it feeling like fall and I cannot tell you how relieved I am to have that happen. You know how much happier I am when it is not humid and full of mosquitoes. That's the corollary to The Night is Dark and Full of Terrors, for those of you who watch Game of Thrones. Watched, past tense. Oy. Anyway, boy, do I have chapters for you today. Holy cow. So I know I told you way back, long before I decided to do this book, that one of the things I liked best was Long John Silver, because he's not your typical villain. And you're going to see a little bit more of that today. You are also going to see some more really impressive fancy footwork with his mouth done by Jim. <laughs> he, he's an impressive character in these chapters. We also have a, not on this podcast, controversial word, but it is a word that has struck controversy in the past out in the public. And I know that we had to deal with this Oh, ages ago. When do we have to deal with this? It may have been as far back as Tristan and Isolde. Wow, that's really pulling it out, isn't it? Anyway, the word is originally one of probably an Old Norse word. Some of you are going to know where this is going. It's an Old Norse word that means stingy. So the word is used exactly the same way when it's used in English. It is pronounced similarly to how it would have been pronounced in Norse. And unfortunately, it sounds a whole lot like another word that is beyond the pale in my world. This is not a word that I used when I taught. It's not a word that I used when I taught Huck Finn. It is not a word that I feel comfortable using at all, which means that you probably now know exactly what word it is. It is niggardly. It just makes me cringe every time I have to say it. It means exactly what it is supposed to mean in the usage that you will hear it in today's chapters, 27, 28, and 29. And it's a a description of how much firewood they were asked to gather and use. So Captain Smollett was kind of stingy with the firewood is another way to say it, but not the way that RLS decided to say it in the book. So that's all. I think the important thing is to know where the name comes from. It doesn't have a Latinate root at all. All. It is not related to the offensive term at all. And it's probably good to know that because then if somebody says it and you're around again and people get all kerfuffled, you can tell them two things. You can tell them the origin of the word and then you can tell them that if they don't believe you, there is an entire Wikipedia page now. This was not true back when we had to deal with this word before. There's an entire Wikipedia page dealing with just 
controversies in the United States about the use of this word within the last 20 years. So it's all well documented. I remember several of them being in the news at the time. And the best reaction, I thought, came from the guy who at the time was running the NAACP. And if you're not in the United States, you might not know, the NAACP is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, which should give you a hint as to how long this group has been a force for good in the United States. So that's, and that's also why it's referred to as the NAACP. His response to the first incident 20 years ago, January 15th, 1999, the quote on this page says that he deplored the offense that had been taken at David Howard. He was a, an aide to the mayor of Washington, D.C. He deplored the offense that had been taken at Howard's use of the word. And his quote is, you hate to think that you have to censor your language to meet other people's lack of understanding. And then he went on to say, David Howard should not have been forced to quit. Mayor Williams should bring him back and order dictionaries to be issued to all staff who need them. I know, right? Like, yay, education, self-education makes me happy. So thank you to Julian Bond for his wise words in that situation 20 years ago. That said, we have a lot of other terms, none of which are nearly as potentially divisive as that one. Dogs watch, just a reminder, this is either from 4 to 6 p.m. or from 6 to 8 p.m. That's the one place in the daily schedule where the normal four-hour watch shift is broken up into two shorter watches. Blunt, B-L-U-N-T, used to be slang for cash, moolah, money. Saying that somebody did something by the board means they walked the plank. There is also exactly zero proof that any pirate ever made anyone walk the plank. That may just be something that comes from this book and nowhere else. So it's good to know what they're saying doesn't have to be true. One of the guys will say he doesn't valley bullying a marlin spike. That means he doesn't value valley bullying a marlin spike. You don't want to go and bully something that is really super sharp, whether it's somebody's tongue or an actual implement. A marlin spike is a pointed metal tool that you would use to separate the strands of rope if you were going to splice the rope. So you'd need to really tease out the individual plies in order to do that. And the last word is plum duff, which will be known to some of you and not to others. Plum duff is another phrase for plum pudding. And that's that. We are prepared because... Everything else that happens in this chapter is just 100% plot, and it goes really fast, and a lot happens, and we learn a lot of really important information. So, I'm not going to hold you back at all. Here we go, listening to chapters 27, 28, and 29 of Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter 27 pieces of eight. Owing to the cant of the vessel, the masts hung far out over the water, and from my perch on the cross-trees I had nothing below me but the surface of the bay. Hands, who was not so far up, was in consequence nearer to the ship, and fell between me and the bulwarks. 
He rose once to the surface in a lather of foam and blood, and then sank again for good. As the water settled I could see him lying huddled together on the clean bright sand in the shadow of the vessel's sides. A fish or two whipped past his body. Sometimes by the quivering of the water he appeared to move a little, as if he were trying to rise, but he was dead enough for all that, being both shot and drowned, and was food for fish in the very place where he had designed my slaughter. I was no sooner certain of this than I began to feel sick, faint, and terrified. The hot blood was running over my back and chest. The dirk, where it had pinned my shoulder to the mast, seemed to burn like a hot iron. Yet it was not so much these real sufferings that distressed me, for these, it seemed to me, I could bear without a murmur. It was the horror that I had upon my mind of falling from the cross-tree into that still green water beside the body of the coxswain. I clung with both hands till my nails ached, and I shut my eyes as if to cover up the peril. Gradually my mind came back again. My pulses quieted down to a more natural time, and I was once more in possession of myself. It was my first thought to pluck forth the dirk, but either it struck too hard or my nerve failed me, and I desisted with a violent shudder. Oddly enough, that very shudder did the business. The knife, in fact, had come the nearest in the world to missing me altogether. It held me by a mere pinch of skin, and this the shudder tore away. The blood ran down the faster, to be sure, but I was my own master again, and only tacked to the mast by my coat and shirt. These last I broke through with a sudden jerk, and then regained the deck by the starboard shrouds, for nothing in the world would I have again ventured, shaken as I was, upon the overhanging port shrouds from which Israel had so lately fallen. I went below and did what I could for my wound. It pained me a good deal, and still bled freely, but it was neither deep nor dangerous, nor did it greatly gall me when I used my arm. Then I looked around me, and as the ship was now in a sense my own, I began to think of clearing it from its last passenger, the dead man O'Brien. He had pitched, as I have said, against the bulwarks, where he lay like some horrid, ungainly sort of puppet. Life-size, indeed, but how different from life's colour or life's comeliness! In that position I could easily have my way with him, and as the habit of tragical adventures had worn off almost all my terror for the dead, I took him by the waist, as if he'd been a sack of bran, and with one good heave tumbled him overboard. He went in with a sounding plunge. The red cap came off and remained floating on the surface and as soon as the splash subsided I could see him and Israel lying side by side, both wavering with the tremulous movement of the water. O'Brien, though still quite a young man, was very bald. There he lay with that bald head across the knees of the man who had killed him, and the quick fishes steering to and fro over both. I was now alone within the ship. The tide had just turned. 
The sun was within so few degrees of setting that already the shadows of the pines upon the western shore began to reach right across the anchorage and fall in patterns on the deck. The evening breeze had sprung up, and though it was well warded off by the hill with the two peaks upon the east, the cordage had begun to sing a little softly to itself, and the idle sails to rattle to and fro. I began to see a danger to the ship. The jibs I speedily doused and brought tumbling to the deck, but the mainsail was a harder matter. Of course, when the schooner canted over, the boom had swung outward, and the cap of it, and a foot or two of sail, hung even under water. I thought this made it still more dangerous, yet the strain was so heavy that I half feared to meddle. At last I got my knife and cut the halyards. The peak dropped instantly, the great belly of loose canvas floated broad upon the water, and since, pull as I liked, I could not budge the downhaul, that was the extent of what I could accomplish. For the rest, the Hispaniola must trust to luck, like myself. By this time the whole anchorage had fallen into shadow, the last rays, I remember, falling through a glade of the wood, and shining bright as jewels on the flowery mantle of the wreck. It began to be chill. The tide was rapidly fleeting seaward, the schooner settling more and more on her beam-ends. I scrambled forward and looked over. It seemed shallow enough, and holding the cut hawser in both hands for a last security, I let myself drop softly overboard. The water scarcely reached my waist, the sand was firm and covered with ripple-marks, and I waded ashore in great spirits, leaving the Hispaniola on her side, with her mainsail trailing wide upon the surface of the bay. About the same time the sun went fairly down, and the breeze whistled low in the dusk among the tossing pines. At least, and at last, I was off the sea, nor had I returned thence empty-handed. There lay the schooner, clear at last from buccaneers, and ready for our own men to board and get to sea again. I had nothing nearer my fancy than to get home to the stockade and boast of my achievements. Possibly I might be blamed a bit for my truanty, but the recapture of the Hispaniola was a clinching answer, and I hoped that even Captain Smollett would confess I had not lost my time. So thinking, and in famous spirits, I began to set my face homeward for the blockhouse and my companions. I remembered that the most easterly of the rivers, which drain into Captain Kidd's anchorage, ran from the two-peaked hill upon my left, and I bent my course in that direction, that I might pass the stream while it was small. The wood was pretty open, and keeping along the lower spurs, I had soon turned the corner of that hill, and not long after waded to the mid-calf across the watercourse. This brought me near to where I had encountered Ben Gunn, the maroon, and I walked more circumspectly, keeping an eye on every side. The dusk had come nigh hand completely, and, as I opened out of the cleft between the two peaks, I became aware of a wavering glow against the sky where, as I judged, the man of the island was cooking his supper before a roaring fire. And yet I wondered in my heart that he should show himself so careless, for if I could see this radiance, might it not reach the eye of silver himself, where he camped upon the shore among the marshes? 
Gradually the night fell blacker. It was all I could do to guide myself even roughly toward my destination. The double hill behind me and the spyglass on my right hand loomed fainter and fainter. The stars were few and pale, and in the low ground where I wandered I kept tripping among bushes and rolling into sandy pits. Suddenly a kind of brightness fell about me. I looked up. A pale glimmer of moonbeams had alighted on the summit of the spyglass, and soon after I saw something broad and silvery moving low down behind the trees, and knew the moon had risen. With this to help me I passed rapidly over what remained to me of my journey, and, sometimes walking, sometimes running, impatiently drew near to the stockade. Yet, as I began to thread the grove that lies before it, I was not so thoughtless but that I slacked my pace and went a trifle warily. It would have been a poor end of my adventures to get shot down by my own party in mistake. The moon was climbing higher and higher. Its light began to fall here and there in masses through the more open districts of the wood, and right in front of me a glow of a different colour appeared among the trees. It was red and hot, and now and again it was a little darkened, as it were the embers of a bonfire smouldering. For the life of me I could not think what it might be. At last I came right down upon the borders of the clearing. The western end was already steeped in moonshine, the rest, and the blockhouse itself, still lay in a black shadow, chequered with long silvery streaks of light. On the other side of the house an immense fire had burned itself into clear embers, and shared a steadily red reverberation, contrasting strongly with the mellow paleness of the moon. There was not a soul stirring, nor a sound beside the noises of that breeze. I stopped with much wonder in my heart, and perhaps a little terror also. It had not been our way to build great fires. We were indeed, by the captain's orders, somewhat niggardly of firewood, and I began to fear that something had gone wrong while I was absent. I stole round by the eastern end, keeping close in shadow, and, at a convenient place where the darkness was thickest, crossed the palisade. To make assurance surer, I got upon my hands and knees, and crawled without a sound toward the corner of the house. As I drew nearer my heart was suddenly and greatly lightened. It was not a pleasant noise in itself, and I have often complained of it in other times, but just then it was like music to hear my friends snoring together so loud and peaceful in their sleep. The sea-cry of the watch that beautiful all's well never fell more reassuring me on my ear. In the meantime there was no doubt of one thing. They kept an infamous bad watch. If it had been Silver and his lads that were now creeping in on them, not a soul would have seen daybreak. That was what it was, thought I, to have the captain wounded. And again I blamed myself sharply for leaving them in that danger, with so few to mount guard. By this time I had got to the door and stood up. All was dark within, so that I could distinguish nothing by the eye. As for sounds, there was the steady drone of the snorers, and a small occasional noise, a flickering or pecking, that I could in no way account for. With my arms before me I walked steadily in. 
I should lie down in my own place, I thought with a silent chuckle, and enjoy their faces when they found me in the morning. My foot struck something yielding. It was a sleeper's leg, and he turned and groaned, but without awaking. And then, all of a sudden, a shrill voice broke forth out of the darkness. "'Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! and so forth, without pause or change, like the clacking of a tiny mill. Silver's green parrot! Captain Flint! It was she whom I had heard pecking at a piece of bark! It was she keeping better watch than any human being who thus announced my arrival with her wearisome refrain. I had no time left me to recover. At the sharp clicking tone of the parrot, the sleepers awoke and sprang up, and with a mighty oath the voice of Silver cried, "'Who goes?' I turned to run, struck violently against one person, recoiled, and ran full into the arms of a second, who, for his part, closed upon and held me tight. "'Bring a torch, Dick!' said Silver, when my capture was thus assured. And one of the men left the log-house, and presently returned with a lighted brand." End of chapter 27 Part 6 Captain Silver Chapter 28 In the Enemy's Camp The bright glare of the torch lighting up the interior of the blockhouse showed me the worst of my apprehensions realized. The pirates were in possession of the house and stores, there was the cask of cognac, there were the pork and bread as before, and what tenfold increased my horror not a sign of any prisoner. I could only judge that all had perished, and my heart smote me sorely that I had not been there to perish with them. There were six of the buccaneers, all told. Not another man was left alive. Five of them were on their feet, flushed and swollen, suddenly called out of the first sleep of drunkenness. The sixth had only risen upon his elbow. He was deadly pale, and the blood-stained bandage round his head told that he had recently been wounded, and was still more recently dressed. I remembered the man who had been shot and run back among the woods in the great attack, and doubted not that this was he. The parrot sat, preening her plumage, on Long John's shoulder. He himself, I thought, looked somewhat paler and more stern than I was used to. He still wore his fine broadcloth suit, in which he had fulfilled his mission, but it was bitterly the worse for wear, daubed with clay and torn with sharp briars of the wood. "'So,' said he, "'here's Jim Hawkins shiver my timbers, dropped in like, eh? Well, come, I take that friendly.' And thereupon he sat down across the brandy-cask, and began to fill a pipe. "'Give me the loan of a link, Dick,' said he, and then, when he had a good light, "'That'll do, my lad,' he added. "'Stick the glim in the wood-heap, and you, gentlemen, bring yourselves too. You needn't stand up for Mr. Hawkins. He'll excuse you. You may lay to that. And so, Jim,' stopping the tobacco, "'here you are, and quite a pleasant surprise for old John.' I see you were smart when first I set my eyes on you, but this ere gets away from me clean, it do. 
To all this, as may be well supposed, I made no answer. They had set me with my back against the wall, and I stood there looking silver in the face, pluckily enough, I hope, to all outward appearance, but with black despair in my heart. Silver took a whiff or two of his pipe, with great composure, and then ran on again. "'Now you see, Jim, so be as you are here,' said he, "'I'll give you a piece of my mind. I've always liked you I have for a lad of spirit, and the picture of my own self when I was young and handsome. I always wanted to join and take your share, and die a gentleman, and now my cock you've got to. Captain Smollett to find seamen, as I'll own up to any day, but stiff on discipline. Duty is duty, says he, and right he is. Just you keep clear of the captain. The doctor himself is gone dead again you. Ungrateful scamp, was what he said. And the short and the long of the whole story is about here. You can't go back to your own lot, for they won't have you, and without you start a third ship's company all by yourself, which might be lonely, you'll have to join with Captain Silver. So far so good. My friends then were still alive, and though I partly believed the truth of Silver's statement, that the cabin party were incensed at me for my desertion, I was more relieved than distressed by what I heard. "'I don't say nothing as to your being in our hands,' continued Silver, "'though there you are, and you may lay to it. I'm all for argument. I never seen good come out of threatening. If you like the service, well, you're join, and if you don't, Jim, why, you're free to answer no. Free and welcome, shipmate, and if fairer can be said by mortal seamen, shiver my sides. Am I to answer, then? I asked, with a very tremulous voice. Through all this sneering talk I was made to feel the threat of death that overhung me, and my cheeks burned and my heart beat painfully in my breast. "'Lad,' said Silver, "'no one's a-pressin' of you. Take your bearings. None of us won't hurry you, mate. Time goes so pleasant in your company, you see.' "'Well,' says I, growing a bit bolder, "'if I'm to choose, I declare I have a right to know what's what, and why you're here, and where my friends are." "'What's what?' repeated one of the buccaneers in a deep growl. Uh, "'He'd be a lucky one as know that.' "'You're perhaps batten down your hatches till you are spoken to, my friend,' cried Silver truculently to the speaker. And then, in his first gracious tones, he replied to me, "'Yesterday morning, Mr. Hawkins,' said he, "'in the dog-watch, down came Dr. Livesey with a flag of truce. Says he, Captain Silver, you're sold out. Ship's gone. Well, maybe we'd been taking a glass and a song to help it round. I won't say no. Leastways, none of us had looked out. We looked out, and by thunder the old ship was gone. I never seen a pack of fools look fishier, and you may lay to that, if I tells you that I look the fishiest. 
Well, says the doctor, let's bargain. We bargained him and I, and here we are. Stores, brandy, blockhouse, the firewood you was thoughtful enough to cut, and in a manner of speaking the whole blessed boat from cross-trees to Keelson. As for them they've tramped, I don't know where's they are. He drew again quietly at his pipe. And lest you should take it into that head of yours, he went on, that you was included in the treaty, here's the last word that was said. How many are you, says I, to leave? Four, says he, four, and one of us wounded. As for that boy, I don't know where he is, confound him, says he, nor I don't much care. We're about sick of him, there was, was his words. Is that all? I asked. Well, it's all you're to hear, my son, returned Silver. And now I, I am to choose? And now you are to choose, and you may lay to that, said Silver. Well, said I. I am not such a fool, but I know pretty well what I have to look for. Let the worst come to the worst. It's little I care. I've seen too many die since I fell in with you. But there's a thing or two I have to tell you, I said, and by this time I was quite excited. And the first is this. Here you are in a bad way. Ship lost, treasure lost, men lost, your whole business gone to wreck. And if you want to know who did it, it was I. I was in the apple-barrel that night we sighted land, and heard you, John, and you, Dick Johnson, and Hans, who is now at the bottom of the sea, and told every word you said before the hour was out. And as for the schooner, it was I who cut her cable, and it was I who killed the men you had aboard her, and it was I who brought her where you'll never see her more, not one of you. The laugh's on my side. I've had the top of this business from the first. I no more fear you than I fear a fly. Kill me, if you please, or spare me. But one thing I'll say, and no more, if you spare me, bygones are bygones, and when you fellows are in court for piracy, I'll save you all I can. It is for you to choose. Kill another, and do yourselves no good, or spare me, and keep a witness to save you from the gallows. I stopped now, for I tell you I was out of breath, and to my wonder, not a man of them moved, but all sat staring at me like as many sheep. And while they were still staring, I broke out again. "'And now, Mr. Silver,' I said, "'I believe you're the best man here, and if things go to the worst, I'll take it kind of you to let the doctor know the way I took it.' "'I'll bear it in mind,' said Silver, with an accent so curious that I could not for the life of me decide whether he was laughing at my request, or had been favourably affected by my courage. "'I'll put one to that,' cried the old mahogany-faced seaman, Morgan by name, whom I had seen in Long John's public-house upon the quays of Bristol. "'It was him that no black dog.' "'Well, and see here,' added the sea-cook, "'I'll put another to that boy, Thunder. It was this same boy that faked the chart from Billy Bones. First and last we've split upon Jim Hawkins.' "'Then here goes,' said Morgan, with an oath. And he sprang up, drawing his knife as if he had been twenty. "'Avast there!' cried Silver. "'Who are you, Tom Morgan? Maybe you thought you were captain here, perhaps. 
boy, the power is, but I'll teach you better. Cross me and you'll go where many a good man's gone before you, first and last, these thirty year back. Some to the yard arm shiver my sides, and some by the board and all to feed the fishes. There's never a man looked me between the eyes and seen a good day afterwards. Tom Morgan, you may late to that. Morgan paused, but a hoarse murmur rose from the others. "'Tom's right,' said one. "'I stood hazing long enough from one,' added another. "'I'll be hanged if I'll be hazed by you, John Silver.' "'Did any of you gentlemen want to have it out with me?' roared Silver, bending far forward from his position on the keg, with his pipe still glowing in his right hand. "'Put a name on what you're at. You ain't dumb, I reckon. Him that once shall get it.' Have I lived this many years to have a son of a rum punch and cock his hat thwart my ozure at the latter end of it? You know the way. You're all gentlemen of fortune by your account. Well, I'm ready. Take a cutlass, him that dares, and I'll see the colour of his inside, crutch and all, before that pipe's empty. Not a man stirred, not a man answered. "'That's your sort, is it?' he added, returning his pipe to his mouth. "'Well, you're a gay lot to look at, anyway. Not worth much in a foot, you ain't. Perhaps you can understand King George's English. I'm captain here by election. I'm captain here because I'm the best man by a long sea moil. You won't fight as gentlemen of fortune should, then by Thunder Yellow Bay, and you may lay to it. I like that boy now. I've never seen a better boy than that. He's more a man than any pair of rats of you in this ere house. And what I say is this, let me see him that'll lay a hand on him. That's what I say, and you may lay to it. There was a long pause after this. I stood straight up against the wall, my heart still going like a sledge-hammer, but with a ray of hope now shining in my bosom. Silver leant back against the wall, his arms crossed, his pipe in the corner of his mouth as calm as though he had been in church, yet his eye kept wandering furtively, and he kept the tail of it on his unruly followers. They, on their part, drew gradually together toward the far end of the blockhouse, and the low hiss of their whispering sounded in my ears continuously like a stream. One after another they would look up, and the red light of the torch would fall for a second on their nervous faces, but it was not toward me. It was toward Silver that they turned their eyes. "'You seem to have a lot to say,' remarked Silver, spitting far into the air. "'Pipe up and let me hear it, or lay to.' "'Ax your pardon, sir,' returned one of the men. "'You're pretty free with some of the rules. Maybe you'll kindly keep an eye upon the rest. This crew's dissatisfied. This crew don't valley bullying the marlin spike. This crew has its rights, like other crews. I'll make so free as that, and by your own rules I take it we can talk together.' I ax your pardon, sir, acknowledging you for the captain at this present, but I claim my right, and steps outside for a council. 
and with an elaborate sea salute this fellow, a long, ill-looking, yellow-eyed man of five-and-thirty, stepped coolly toward the door and disappeared out of the house. One after another the rest followed his example, each making a salute as he passed, each adding some apology. "'Called into rules,' said one. "'Folks all counsel,' said Morgan. And so, with one remark or another, all marched out and left Silver and me alone with the torch. The sea-cook instantly removed his pipe. "'Now look you here, Jim Hawkins,' he said in a steady whisper that was no more than audible. "'You're within half a plank of death, and what's a long sight worse, of torture. They're going to throw me off, but you, Mark, I stand by you through thick and thin. I didn't mean to, no, not till you spoke up. I was about desperate to lose that much blunt and be hanged into the bargain. But I see you was the right sort. I says to myself, you stand by Hawkins, John, and Hawkins will stand by you. You're his last card, and by the living thunder, John, he's yours. Back to back, says I, you save your witness, and he'll save your neck. I began dimly to understand. You mean all's lost? I asked. Ay, by gum, I do, he answered. Ship gone, neck gone, that's the size of it. Once I looked into that bay, Jim Hawkins, and see no schooner, well, I'm tough, but I gave out. As for that lot and their counsel, mark me, they're outright fools and cowards. I'll save your life, if so be as I can, from them. But see here, Jim, tit for tat, you save Long John from swinging. I was bewildered. It seemed a thing so hopeless, he was asking. He, the old buccaneer, the ringleader throughout. What I can do, that I'll do, I said. It's a bargain cried Long John. You speak up plucky, and by thunder I have a chance. He hobbled to the torch where it stood propped among the firewood, and took a fresh light to his pipe. Understand me, Jim, he said, returning. I've had on my shoulders, I have. I'm on Squire's side now. I know you've got that ship safe somewheres. How you done it, I don't know, but safe it is. I guess Hans and O'Brien turned soft. I never much believed in neither of them. Now you mark me. I ask no questions, nor won't let others. I know when a game's up, I do, and I know a lad that's staunch. Ah, you that's young, you might, you and me might have done a power of good together. He drew some cognac from the cask into a tin cannikin. "'Will you taste, messmate?' he asked, and when I had refused, "'Well, I'd take a drain myself, Jim,' said he. "'I need a corker for this trouble on hand.' And then, "'And talking of trouble, why did that doctor give me the chart, Jim?' My face expressed a wonder so unaffected that he saw the needlessness of further questions. "'Ah, well, he did, though,' said he. "'And there is something under that, no doubt, something surely under that, Jim, bad or good.' And he took another swallow of the brandy, shaking his great fair head like a man who looks forward to the worst. End of chapter 28
Chapter Twenty Nine, The Black Spot Again. The council of the buccaneers had lasted some time when one of them re-entered the house and, with a repetition of the same salute, which had in my eyes an ironical air, begged for a moment's loan of the torch. Silver briefly agreed, and this emissary retired again, leaving us together in the dark. "'There is a breeze coming, Jim,' said Silver, who had by this time adopted quite a friendly and familiar tone. I turned to the loophole nearest me, and looked out. The embers of the great fire had so far burned themselves out, and now glowed so low and duskily that I understood why these conspirators desired a torch. About halfway down the slope to the stockade they were collected in a group. One held the light, another was on his knees in their midst, and I saw the blade of an open knife shine in his hand with varying colours in the moon and torchlight. The rest were all somewhat stooping, as though watching the manoeuvres of this last. I could just make out that he had a book as well as a knife in his hand, and was still wondering how anything so incongruous had come in their possession, when the kneeling figure rose once more to his feet, and the whole party began to move together toward the house. "'Here they come,' said I, and returned to my former position for it seemed beneath my dignity that they should find me watching them. "'Well, let em come, lad, let em come,' said Silver cheerily. "'I've still a shot in my locker.' The door opened, and the five men, standing huddled together just inside, pushed one of their number forward. In any other circumstances it would have been comical to see his slow advance, hesitating as he set down each foot, but holding his closed right hand in front of him. "'Step up, lad!' cried Silver. "'I won't eat you. Hand it over, lubber. I know the rules, too. I won't hurt a deputation.' Thus encouraged, the buccaneer stepped forth more briskly, and, having passed something to Silver from hand to hand, slipped yet more smartly back again to his companions. The sea-cook looked at what had been given him. The black spot. I thought so," he observed. "Where might you have got the paper? Why, hello! Look here now, ain't this lucky? You've gone and cut this out of a Bible. What a fool's cut a Bible!" "Oh, there," said Morgan. "There. What did I say? No good'll come of that. I said. Well, you've about fixed it now among you." continued Silver. "'You'll all swing now, I reckon. What soft-headed lubber had a Bible?' "'It was Dick,' said one. "'Dick, was it? Then Dick can get to prayers,' said Silver. "'He's seen his slicer look as Dick, and you may lay to that.' But here the long man with the yellow eyes struck in. "'Belay that talk, John Silver,' he said. This crew has tipped you the black spot in full council, as duty-bound. Just you turn it over as in duty-bound, and see what's wrote there. Then you can talk." "'Thank ye, George,' replied the sea-cook. "'You always was brisk for business, and as the rules by heart, George, as I'm pleased to see. Well, what is it, anyway?' 
Ah, deposed. That's it, is it? Well, very pretty wrote, to be sure. Like print, I swear. Your hand a-right, George? Why, you was getting quite the leading man in this ere crew. You'll be captain next, I shouldn't wonder. Just oblige me with that torch again, will yer? This pipe don't draw. Come now, said George. You don't fool this crew no more. You're a funny man by your account, but you're over now, and you'll maybe step down off that barrel and help vote. I thought you said you knowed the rules, returned Silver contemptuously. Leastwise, if you don't, I do, and I wait here, and I'm still your cap'n mind, till you outs with your grievances, and I reply. In the meantime, your black spot ain't worth a biscuit. After that, we'll see. Oh, replied George, you don't be under no kind of apprehension. We're all square, we are. First, you've made a hash of this cruise. You'll be a bold man to say no to that. Second, you let the enemy out of this here trap for nothing. Why did they want out? I dunno, but it's pretty plain they wanted it. Third, you wouldn't let us go at them upon the march. Ah, we see through you, John Silver. You want to play booty. That's what's wrong with you. And then, fourth, there's this here boy. Is that all? asked Silver quietly. Enough, too, retorted George. We'll all swing and sun-dry for your bungling. Well, now, look here, I'll answer these four points. One after another I'll answer em. I made a hash of this cruise, did I? Well, now, you all know what I wanted. And you all know, if it had been done, that we'd have been aboard the Spaniola this night as ever was, every man of us alive and fit, and full of good plum duff, and the treasure in the hold of her by thunder. Well, who crossed me, who forced my hand as was the lawful captain? Who tipped me the black spot the day we landed and began this dance? Ah, it's a fine dance. I'm with you there, and it looks mighty like a hornpipe in a rope's end execution dock by London town it does. But who done it? Why, it was Anderson and Hans, and you, George, Mary, and you're the last above board of that same meddling crew, and you have the Davy Jones insolence to up and stand for captain over me, you that sunk the lot of us by the powers. But this tops the stiffish yarn to nothing. Silver paused, and I could see by the faces of George and his late comrades that these words had not been said in vain. "'That's for number one,' cried the accused, wiping the sweat from his brow, for he had been talking with a vehemence that shook the house. "'Why, I give you my word, I'm sick to speak to you. You've neither sense nor memory, and I leave it to fancy where your mother's was that let you come to see. See?' Gentlemen of fortune, I reckon tailors is your trade. 
"'Go on, John,' said Morgan. "'Speak up to the others.' "'Ah, the others,' returned John. "'They're a nice lot, ain't they? "'You say this cruise is bungled? "'Ah, by gum, if you could understand how bad it's bungled, you would see. "'Were that near the gibbet that my neck's stiff with thinking on it? "'You've seen em maybe hanged in chains, birds about em, "'seamen pointing em out as they go down with the tide.' "'Who's that?' says one. "'That, why, that's John Silver. I knowed him well,' says another. "'And you clear the chains a-jangle as you go about and reach for the other boy. "'Now that's about where we are, every mother's son of us, thanks to him and Hans and Anderson, "'and other ruination fools of you. "'And if you want to know about number four and that boy, why, shiver my timbers, isn't he a hostage?' Are we going to waste a hostage? No, not us. He might be our last chance, I shouldn't wonder. Kill that boy, not me, mates. And number three? Wow, well, there's a deal to say to number three. Maybe you don't count it nothing to have a real college doctor come to see you every day. You, John, with your head broke, or you, George, Mary, that had the ague shakes upon you not six hours agone, and adds your eyes the colour of lemon peels to this same moment on the clock. And maybe, perhaps, you didn't know there was a consort coming either. But there is, and not so long till then, and we'll see who'll be glad to have hostage when it comes to that. And as for number two, why I made a bargain. Well, you come crawling on your knees to me to make it. On your knees you came, you was that downhearted. And you'd have starved too if I hadn't. But that's a trifle. You look there, that's why and he cast down upon the floor a paper that I instantly recognised. None other than the chart on yellow paper, with the three red crosses that I had found in the oilcloth at the bottom of the captain's chest. Why the doctor had given it to him was more than I could fancy. But if it were inexplicable to me, the appearance of the chart was incredible to the surviving mutineers. They leapt upon it like cats upon a mouse. It went from hand to hand, one tearing it from another, and by the oaths and the cries and the childish laughter with which they accompanied their examination, you would have thought not only they were fingering the very gold, but were at sea with it besides in safety. "'Yes,' said one, "'that's Flint for sure. J. F. and a score below, with a close hitch to it. So he ever done. Mighty pretty!' said George. But how are we to get away with it, and us no ship? Silver suddenly sprang up, and supporting himself with a hand against the wall, "'Now I'll give you warning, George,' he cried. "'One more word of your sauce, and I'll call you down and fight you. How? Why, how do I know? You had ought to tell me that, you and the rest that lost me my schooner, with your interference, burn you. But not you, you can't. You ain't got the invention of a cockroach. But civil you can speak, and you shall, George Mary, you may lay to that. That's fair enow, said the old man Morgan. Fair, I reckon so, 
said the sea-cook. "'You lost the ship, I found the treasure. Who's the better man at that? And now I resign by thunder-elect whom you please to be your captain now. I'm done with it.' "'Silver!' they cried. "'Barbecue for ever! Barbecue for captain!' "'So that's the tune, is it?' cried the cook. "'George, I reckon you'll have to wait another turn, friend, and lucky for you, as I'm not a revengeful man. But that was never my way. And now, shipmates, this black spot. Tain't much good now, is it? Dick's crossed his luck and spoiled his Bible, and that's about all.' "'It'll do to kiss the book on still, won't it?' growled Dick who was evidently uneasy at the curse he had brought upon himself. "'A Bible with a bit cut out,' returned Silver derisively. "'Not it. It don't bind more than a ballad-book.' "'Don't it, though?' cried Dick, with a sort of joy. "'Well, I reckon that's worth having, too.' "'Here, Jim, here's a curiosity for you,' said Silver, and he tossed me the paper. It was a round about the size of a crown piece. One side was blank, for it had been the last leaf. The other contained a verse or two of revelation. These words among the rest, which struck sharply home upon my mind. Without are dogs and murderers. The printed side had been blackened with wood-ash, which already began to come off and soil my fingers. On the blank side had been written with the same material the one word, deposed. I have that curiosity beside me at this moment, but not a trace of writing now remains beyond a single scratch, such as a man might make with his thumbnail. That was the end of the night's business. Soon after, with a drink all round, we lay down to sleep, and the outside of Silver's vengeance was to put George Merry up for sentinel, and threaten him with death if he should prove unfaithful. It was long ere I could close an eye, and heaven knows I had matter enough for thought in the man whom I had slain that afternoon, in my own most perilous position, and, above all, in the remarkable game that I saw Silver now engaged upon, keeping the mutineers together with one hand, and grasping with the other, after every means possible and impossible, to make his peace and save his miserable life. He himself slept peacefully and snored aloud. Yet my heart was sore for him, wicked as he was, to think on the dark perils that environed, and the shameful gibbet that awaited him. End of chapter 29 All right. A lot happened, right? I wasn't lying. So we started with Jim having to watch dead men on the floor of the ocean, which, by the way, you know those are crystal clear waters if you can see the bodies entwined on the floor of the ocean. So, yay, yay for the Caribbean, but woof, woof for the kid. So Jim gets off the boat. He gets off the ship. He goes back. You have the weird bonfire thing where he thinks Ben Gunn has been burning a bonfire, but that seems kind of weird because, again, Captain Smollett had been kind of stingy with the wood. And then he gets back to the outpost and gets captured. 
At which point, in chapter 28, I believe we can agree, Jim, holy sm- the cojones on this kid, to stand up to Long John Silver the way he does and end it with, you know, and I'll, I'll do my best to keep you from getting hung. So even though I've done all of these things to try and ruin your chances of getting the treasure and getting out alive, I'll, I'll do my darndest. And the funny thing is, Silver's no idiot. And he knows that Jim, being kind of young and innocent, there's a really good chance that Jim isn't lying. Silver plays it really well with his crew of, you don't want to get rid of a hostage. The hostage is valuable. Killing him is really stupid, guys. So that's true. But it's the moment at the end of chapter 28 where we learn that Dr. Livesey gave the chart to Long John Silver. We learn that with Jim. We also learn from that interaction that Silver doesn't know why. So, so neither do we. So now we know that Livesey and his crew are somewhere on the island. We know that Silver has told Jim that Livesey couldn't give a flying wet slap about whether or not Jim is okay, which I don't know, I have a hard time believing. But Jim doesn't seem too racked about that right now, at least not yet. He hasn't had a whole time, a lot of time to deliberate on that one. But now we, we know that Livesey gave up the chart, which either means they found the treasure, they found out there is no treasure, or something else. So we've got some learning to do on that front. And then there's the corollary, which is the crew didn't know Silver had the chart. So that was interesting, too. That means that whatever transaction happened, happened in private between those two men, Livesey and Silver. Now, there's a whole lot of other stuff that was going on. For one thing, Silver shaming one of the guys for having eyes the color of lemon peel, which probably means a really bad case of malaria. But there's also this whole thing going on with the Bible and the black spot on the Bible page and and stuff like that. So... That really is a quote from the book of Revelation, and it really is a quote from the very end of the book of Revelation, without our dogs and murderers, except it doesn't exactly read like that. That is Robert Louis Stevenson doing a nice job of truncating a longer verse to make it mean more uh, symbolically to us, the reader. So this is actually from the book of Revelation, chapter 22, and the subsection in the King James Version is Jesus is coming. And the verse in specific is verse 15, but I want to read you verses 14 and 15 because I think then it makes a lot more sense. So 14 is, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. And then verse 15, For without, for outside of the city, without are dogs and sorcerers, and whoremongers, and murderers, and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. So, inside are the holy, the righteous, the good people. Outside, without, outside the walls, are all the dangerous people who love and make lies. And that little slip of paper is something that Jim hung on to, all the way until at least he was old enough to write the book. Hmm. All right. We are in part six of the book. Part six is the final part of the book, and we have a few more a few more sets of chapters to get through, but we're not going to do it today. So I hope you enjoyed our three chapters today. I think they are so awesome. 
and I'll talk to you soon. Take care of yourself. I'll talk to you later. Bye. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review at iTunes or like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or any one of a million different places that Craftlit wound up over the last 13 years. For more information on Craftlit, you can visit craftlit.com and subscribe via your favorite podcast app or download the Craftlit app so you can get all of your episodes right there in your hand, all in one place without having to hassle with anything else. So you can be sure not to miss any of Treasure Island. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. Thanks. Thanks.